You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. The following is special programming aired in collaboration with the Marjorie Barrick Museum of Art on the campus of UNLV. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Hello there, and welcome to the Marjorie Barrick Museum of Art radio show. Uh, my name is Deanne Soul, or DK Soul, and I'm here today with Martin Hackett, who's currently studying theatre at UNLV. And uh, the reason I thought I'd bring a theatre student in today is that I'm going to be looking at a spoken word piece by one of my museum colleagues who couldn't, unfortunately, physically be here with us. Um, but she's also an artist. Uh, her name is Katie B. Funk. If you tuned into the Barracks last show, you might have heard her uh, talking about some of the pieces in one of our current exhibitions, uh, The Emotional Show. And uh, today I'm, I'm going to be showcasing a little bit of her own art after she showcased so many other people's art last week. But first, let me say hi to Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello. Hi. Um, and I thought I'd, I'd read her piece. She's given me permission to read this. Uh, it's very personal. Um, so it's going to be, I think, a bit odd to hear her ideas and sentiments read through my voice, which is a bit different from hers, but we're going to run with it and see how it sounds. Uh, and if we have some time after I've read it, we're going to maybe talk about some of the themes and ideas that she raises uh, in that piece. Um, maybe a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about artists who use food uh, and memory and bodies, because she mentions all of those things uh, in the piece, and uh, I thought the theme of bodies made it especially relevant to uh, ask a theatre person to be here with me, because of course theatre is very focused on bodies moving through space, and of course this isn't going to be because it's just a voice in your head. Um, before I read it, I'll just introduce you briefly to uh, Katie. Uh, she comes from South Bend, Indiana, and she has an MFA from the Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, she's in Las Vegas at the moment because she's going for a second MFA at UNLV. She loves doing MFAs, and that's how she came to work at the Barrack. She's been with us for a while. She's been great. Um, she loves making art. I think that's clear to anybody who has a, had a chance to see her work, as I luckily have. Um, she's had uh, solo shows in the Grant Hall Gallery on campus. Um, she's had open studios, as the MFAs do fairly regularly. If you've never been to any of those, they're, they're great, uh, even though I think some of the MFAs probably feel a little self-conscious about them. They do open up their studios and you can come in and you can see what they're working on and talk to them about whatever that is. Uh, I always love those. They're such fun. If you do want to know when those are, just keep your eye out on the, I mean, the fine arts um, department has a, a newsletter, an e-newsletter that you can sign up for. And that's a great way to find out about things like that um, that are happening on campus with the arts. Okay, so without further ado, let me read this piece of hers. Um, anything that sounds weird in here is due to me and not her. And I'm just going to hesitate. Like I said, it is quite personal. Uh, none of the things that are in this piece of uh, spoken word art actually happened to me. This is all Katie. Here we go. 
In December of 1996, my dad was diagnosed with a rare malignant metastatic and ultimately inoperable brain tumour. The prognosis was three months, but he would live for three more years. I remember my first grade classmates and I following along with small slate chalkboards as we were learning how to read and write. I struggled with the material and felt extremely frustrated and embarrassed. We took a break at one point and I was out in the lobby getting water from the drinking fountain. I rubbed my eyes nonchalantly, but my teacher, Mrs Holt, spotted me and asked if I was feeling sad about my dad. Rather taken aback, I lied and said yes. It was easier at the time to admit that which I could not understand, and the twofold nature of that sentiment came to light only in more recent years. During this last year, I have been thinking a lot about food. What we eat, why we eat, the colours we eat, how we eat. The curiosities go on. There is a lot of inherent joy and grief when it comes to food, especially in the form of nachos. The crunch, the melt, the spice, the salt. Often cooled down with dips paired along, like sour cream and guacamole. You start with a mountain... You end with crumbs and swiftly unbuttoned pants. Recipes for nachos are as vast as they come, from a simple three-cheese blend to 24-hour root beer marinated pulled pork with cilantro aioli and candied pecans. Nachos were the cornerstone dinner for our Friday nights when I was a kid. There must have been hundreds of these Friday nights, and I can still smell everything coming from the kitchen and feel the particular brightness of the overhead floodlights. My parents would pair it with homemade frozen margaritas, affectionately referring to them as greeters. The jarring metallic sounds of pulverising ice would interrupt whatever it was my sister and I were trying to watch on the TV in the living room. I would smash my ears closed with my fingers, both in fright and annoyance. My dad always made the nachos, and the recipe was simple. Tortilla chips copious amounts of melted shredded cheese, sliced grilled steak, and pickled jalapenos. The key to great nachos was in the layers. Always the layers. Shreds of cheese and other toppings needed to be woven between the layers of chips, otherwise everything would be gone after a few bites. It was a simple meal. It was a comfort meal. It is a meal I wish I could share with my dad once more. I do not remember a single thing I ate on the day my dad died. In the weeks leading to April 27, 2000, the kitchen was bursting with casseroles and cakes and cookies and other various lidded containers of comfort one might make for the loved ones of those who were about to experience death. At school, we were working on a group project constructing dioramas of a house that had to include a battery-operated light source. At home, I learned the terms Meals on Wheels and Hospice. At his funeral, I sat in the front, as family members often do. It was not until turning around and proceeding out of the basilica that I saw the pews were so packed. Hordes of people were standing along the surrounding walls. If the key moments in the timeline of this narrative did not age me already, the mentioning of slate chalkboards likely did. Grief no longer courses through my 34-year-old body the way it did when I was only 10. The grief I experienced then felt more like I was swimming through the motions. 
Today, social media tells me repeatedly that my aching hips are actually holding hostage deeply rooted emotions. That all I need is 30 days of somatic stretching to release everything. TikTok often serves as my manic lullaby, and I fully acknowledge the addictive grasp it has on me. In the swift swipe of my thumb, at any time I choose, I can watch people tell me how to eat, how to dress, how to paint, how many squats to a fatter ass, how to lose that stubborn belly pooch, how to deep fry a whole pizza, how to make no-fuss keto soy matcha green tea protein bites, organic, of course. One night, taking a pause from the more surface-level content, the algorithm aligned to tell me about Einstein's idea of time. More or less, we are all experiencing it on a timescape basis, with all of the past and all of the future already in existence. Our loved ones are simply further ahead on this timescape, just beyond a hill we cannot yet see. My dad loved to sail. He loved stand-up comedy, cold beer, and reading hordes of books. We both shared a love for horror movies. He taught me what sex meant over a game of chess. He was a doctor and had begun family practice at an office just up the road right before the diagnosis. When he had to turn in his medical license, he started referring to every day as a Saturday. He read the Bible in its entirety. He graduated at the top of his class in high school in Columbus, Ohio, and attended the University of Notre Dame on a Fulbright scholarship. I told him once about a dream I'd had just the night before, and he suggested I try and draw it. He often took me to our favourite hole-in-the-wall buffet called China Wok, and we would almost always go next door to Mega Play right after, playing games and eating orange sherbet. He taught me how to soothe a stomachache by taking deep breaths long before mindfulness became a buzzword. He loved to laugh and make others do the same. My mom often said he was the first to arrive at a party and almost always the last to leave. So where do I leave this? I have never really been great with goodbyes, bursting into tears when friends moved away on the last days of school, final moments in the doorways of rented apartments. I have a vivid memory of asking my dad, what are we doing after this? While on vacation in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina, I do not recall his exact response, but remember him telling me patiently and repeatedly to try to enjoy the moment. That is a tough one for a Virgo Leo cusp as myself, always wanting to ensure that this moment will be great, as will the next, therefore making this very moment all the more better. But no moment is a given. Nachos certainly make any moment better. A dwindling, piled-high plethora of toppings serve as a reminder that time is fleeting, but life is sweet. Grief does not wait. Neither does joy. Perhaps the answer is somewhere in the middle. Perhaps it is simply the layers between now and then. Okay, so that is Katie B. Funk's uh, spoken word artwork. 
and I hope I did justice justice to it. Uh, It did remind me of a lot of local artists, not just Katie, who use food in their artwork. I'm I'm thinking of um, Katie's work now and her use of hamburgers. She often uh, draws and paints hamburgers. Martin, have you seen any of her work? Not that I can recall, no. Okay. Um, I think hamburgers and pizzas are what I particularly recall, not so much nachos. Uh, often sort of painted on cardboard as sort of another ephemeral material. So you have the ephemeral food and then also you have the the material that's eventually going to disintegrate in a way that, say, a more traditional material like marble won't. Um, I also think of the fleeting nature of performance, which is something that you're, of course, very acquainted with. Uh, A little. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, Martin's been studying art. He's been in some... uh, plays recently uh, what have you been in recently uh, I was in Happy Days both here at the NCT and at the Vegas Theatre Company um, was a co-production there and then I was involved in the devising and the creation of the panto uh, Cinderella a panto for Las Vegas that's right oh I saw that too That we saw that together I think that was yes. great um, I mean pantos I think are especially fleeting because things can change things can kind of jiggle around and like you said it's a devised uh, piece of theatrical art in other words it's something that doesn't have a playwright sitting there at the beginning and writing a script like the script I've just written I mean that I've just read Um, instead you have the performers actually getting together with a director and inventing what they're going to do and kind of assembling it out of themselves into something that gets eventually kind of coalesced on paper but I think there's also quite a bit of flexibility in it isn't there quite a bit it's more about discovery than about um, you know discovering those moments discovering the things that make the piece work uh, make it funny uh, make it poignant you know and like you say it's not somebody coming in and having something set they they had a general outline and then from there, we built and we explored. We looked at things that were very specific to Las Vegas. Um, for example, the state flower being traffic cones and the constant uh, roadworks. Um, and, you know, obviously things that are, you know, very um, Las Vegas specific, like, you know, the cowboys, the gamblers, the, the singers, everything that you would have in old Las Vegas and then brought that to the stage in some form or another to to really kind of, you know, touch base with where we came from. Mm. And one of the things that, that made that special is because pantomimes are very, um, they're very specific to the location in which they're being performed. They don't want to have like a cookie cutter pantomime, which is one of the reasons why it gets devised. So you kind of get Cinderella as a very flexible outline and you, you fill that in with details from um, the place where it's actually happening, in this case, Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah. For example, one of the characters, uh, Puck, the um, major domo for the, the prince, uh, his best friend, um, wanted to be a Vegas in person. And that's something that they actually brought with them to the to the show. But 
watching uh, Nick Case explore that and develop it and really find that character was was you know and Dave Magtoto actually creating the character in the first place was was fantastic seeing that development mm. that exploration. And I feel like going back to Katie's work and the, the visual arts, I think I've seen that through her development too, as she's been an MFA here, that she does uh, refer things very much back to her own life, as in that that piece. She does. Um, she has SpongeBob SquarePants in her uh, in her work a lot. For example, uh, she tends to root it in those those very basic things, things that you might experience when you're a child, things that you eat. Um, things that you watch. She mentions her father's love of horror movies. And I do remember a a piece that she did that was part performance, Um, but behind, sort of on the wall, behind the space where she was performing, she'd drawn and painted images of uh, villains, you know, evil protagonists from various horror movies, and she integrated them with the sort of autobiographical... um, over context that she was uh, performing too and I thought that was really interesting so I do see a a kind of interesting synergy between particularly pantomimes but of course playwrights who write plays also refer back to their own lives. Well it's interesting that you you mention it because when you were talking about the work that she's currently doing that she's doing hamburgers and pizza one of the first things I thought about was Dan 45 Dan Hernandez who does a number of things with pizza and also taps into the autobiographical and then you mentioned that you don't think she does much in the way of nachos, but Justin Favela has done things with nachos and avocados and things. And again, tying back to his childhood, his his memories. So you see a number of things um, where these two situations meet. Or, for example, um, we were talking about this before, but Brent Holmes, mm. who does you know Absolutely. tie food with performance as an art piece. And it's, an, it's a once-in-a-lifetime situation because you're never going to have that moment again. The very first thing I saw from Brent Holmes was when he was replicating a family reunion barbecue and had made food to give to people. And once the food was gone, the food was gone. It was gone, yeah. yeah. I think that was a that was a vast, it wasn't was. it? Yeah, yeah, sadly defunct and rather great art space that used to be around years ago. And he had, I think, film of his, his family or his family's property. Yeah. That went so to really like Katie's done tie those two ideas of food and family very tightly together and integrate them really, really, really closely. Um, yeah, who are some other locals who local artists or performers who work with food? Um, I mean, I think of Adriana Chavez, who's you know a performer but has also done some visual art. Uh, I remember her their Sun Eater piece. Um, where their character Juan Chico uh, ate <laughs> your your sins and sort of absolved you. Um, also incorporating coors and and other you know food types you know um, memories of of Adriana's childhood and the family members that she was basing the character on too. Yeah, mm, yeah, very much. Yeah, and you mentioned Dan before too, and thank you for bringing him up because I I was trying to think about food and artists and you know local art before, and I didn't actually think of Dan. But you're right. I mean, he uses the image of a pizza again as, as something that's very uh, very easy to obtain, very close to life and and childhood. You know, it's it's something that most people can get their hands on. It's not removed. 
Um, so it, it talks, I think, of a kind of intimacy. Well, that and the lunchboxes, the fact that he mm. uses lunchboxes, which is a, a fundamental concept of childhood where you have, that's how you, many people will take their lunch to school. Not me per se, because I, I, I ended up having the free lunches at the school because we were poor, but some people actually have to, to take lunch to school and it's either a sack or it's that lunchbox. And mm. the 70s definitely, 70s, 80s, and I think a little bit in the 90s definitely brought out a certain je ne sais quoi in lunchboxes where it's like these were these super fancy things that made lunch fantastic for kids. I don't know how how much so it is now, but it's like I, I remember kids having the Star Wars lunchboxes, Muppets lunchboxes, <laughs> He-Man lunchboxes. So you, you had fandom in the lunchboxes. You had that kind of representation. I don't know if kids get that these days, but that was definitely something that's a part of Dan's childhood, and yeah. he brings that out. Yeah, and I love the very clever way um, that he uses the lunchboxes, those, those nostalgic food-related intimate items, uh, as storage spaces for the objects that are actually in the artwork. Um, you know, that he takes them, he hangs the lunchboxes on the wall, which is just ingenious, you know, this repurposing of this thing so that the whole sort of material being of the artwork just talks of this nostalgia. It's not like, say, um, a painting or a statue on a pedestal where the pedestal is not necessarily part of the artwork. It's like you've got the thing supporting the artwork and then you've got the thing on top of it that you're actually supposed to look at as the artwork and kind of blank the pedestal out of your head. Uh, or in some cases with some paintings, you know, you, it, and this is more traditionally, but uh, to operate as a kind of window on reality and ideally you're supposed to kind of forget that you're looking at a canvas with some coloured dirt on it and think, okay, this is really a body. But Dan um, doesn't do that. He makes the whole thing the thing. Well, that that brings to mind the um, College of Fine Arts joint piece that they did, they took to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, Is It Art? And they made such a big thing about the focusing on the pedestal, the pedestal being what holds the art up, but they spent more time looking at the pedestal than the actual art pieces that it would support. So kind of the question was, is the pedestal in and of itself art? So you talking about Dan utilizing the things that we don't normally think of as part of the art, as a part of the art, that, that becomes an interesting connection between performance and art and, and our expectations and understandings of them. Mm. Now, I'm, now that we've been talking about pedestals, I'm back to thinking of bodies again. I mean, the body... Again, that, that embodying. Okay, so that idea of the body in a performance, you're not putting the body, I suppose you put the body, this is very confused, but I'm suddenly thinking of the body as an artwork without a pedestal, a, an artwork that kind of rejects the pedestal and moves around. Although now I'm thinking, what if the stage, you take the stage as a pedestal, but then of course you have performances um, like we've we've both seen that take place in places where there aren't, where there are very uh, ostentatiously not stages. We've seen performances in motel rooms where you actually go and you sit on what's effectively functioning as the stage and the performer is just a couple of feet away from you. We just saw something what, last weekend, The Living Loop, where they, they set up performances in four different locations in um, a house 
Mm, a frat house. You, yeah. to- you told me it was a frat house. Yeah. And so you have performances in places that, you know, it's, one's in the living room, one's in the basement, sort of. One's outside by the fire pit, one's in a shed. And those are not normal performance spaces, but they were able to utilize that and create theater in those spaces. Yeah. And again, that ties into the idea of, you know, I suppose family and memory, because looking at the interior decorated, it being a you know, mid-mod building with those, you know, mirrors that had that kind of gold fleck, mm. you know, um, rivers going through it. Um, you know, those those, those were mirror great. tiles. Yeah, <laughs> that's that anybody who's been in an old mid-mod house or anything like that will remember that that, that evoked memories and seeing people basically in, you know, lounging on couches, you know, you know, jumping up and running around in those areas definitely brought back the memory. Plus it tied in with food and, and, and you know, drinking and the various different things that we, we, we take into ourselves and how we treat ourselves and how we actually look at our, our overall care for ourselves as far as our bodies. Because you know, one piece was about the, the dangers of, of, you know, throwing yourself into addictive behavior. Mm. One was about social media and how, and tying in with Katie's piece with the TikTok, how important, you know, TikTok has become to her and how it was important to the character in that particular piece. So you have that buildup. Then one of the other um, shows brought up social media as well. I believe that was Venus Cobb's piece. Mm-hmm. And then while they're talking about somebody actually deleting their social media because they're in a relationship. That's right. And I did love the way that some of them, I'm thinking of the one that was in the garden in particular, um, referred to the fact that it was in a garden. Again, that idea of, of staging both a visual artwork and a performance artwork and saying, okay, we are not pretending that we're just on a wall or on a pedestal. We're actually referring to the space around us uh, as part of what we intimately are. Um, and... Uh, Interestingly enough, if I remember, Carla Lagunas was there as well, and she's she one of one of Katie's cohort. Um, didn't she do a piece once ages ago where they had grapefruit was involved? Oh yeah, during uh, Twelve Inches of Sin, she did absolutely, yeah, and that was um, what? what they had carts of grapefruit, shopping yes. carts or something like that. Yeah, it's so food is so versatile. Um, it's one of the things that binds us, basically. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way that you can move in and out of different meanings that food has uh, when you're using it in, you know, to mean something other than, okay, this is something that I'm just eating. Hmm. Okay, I think we're, do you think we're about out of time? I think we're we're coming up to the end of I trust you. This show. is the first time I've done this, so. <laughs> That's right. I dragged you in here. I'm like, come, it's nearly Christmas. Um, let's go and have some fun in a recording studio. There we go. It has been fun. Good. I'm glad you've enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope that everybody listening to this has been enjoying it too. So we are going to wrap up pretty soon. Um, again, uh, I'll mention Katie B. Funk, who wrote that wonderful long piece that I, I read earlier, which I personally find extremely moving. Um, you can find her online. Uh, she's got a website. I think it's just katiebfunk.com, or I think her social media is just katiebfunk, all one word. Um, and uh, 
She works at the Marjorie, B- Museum, Marjorie Barrick Museum of Art, as do I. Uh, and if you want to come and see us there after January 2nd, we are closed at the moment, but we'll be reopening at the start of January. We'll be having some workshops for UNLV faculty, staff, students during January. Um, you can find an announcement about that on the front page of our website, and we'll be putting out a little bit more about that shortly on our social media. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for listening to us. It's been great.